All right, good morning. Let's bow for a word of prayer. And uh, dear Father Heaven, thank you again for another day. Thank you for Sunday, a day of rest. But thank you for this Sunday, Lord, of what we call Christmas Eve. Lord, I just pray, Lord, that as we're here today, that we can humble ourselves, Lord, and just listen to the words that Todd will bring to us, Lord. I just pray that we can kind of empty our minds, so to speak, and just examine and look at the gift that you gave us of the Son of Jesus Christ for what would feel like maybe the very first time to just understand what awesomeness that is. We ask all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Daryl. And I forgot my stand. I was thinking this last week, and I guess it's I've thought of it several times this last year, but it was about a year ago, um, December 28th, that we, my family woke up at one in the morning and our garage was on fire and the vehicles were on fire. And so most days when I go out and the garage isn't there, I think about it. But one of the things that I think has impressed me in all of that or has impacted me the most is the amount of help that people offered. The way people came toward us to show love, to help us, and to just be kind to us and good to us. And I think what made that even more impactful was the fact that they moved towards us before we moved towards them to ask for help. Like that morning, I mean, I don't remember what time it was I was receiving phone calls. Do you guys need a vehicle? Can we help? What, what do you need happening? Before we even had a chance to ask for help, help was being offered. And it hit me that love, I think, gets magnified in a sense when people move towards us in love before we move towards them to ask for help or to seek it. And I don't want to diminish it when we need to ask people for help and they give that. But there's something about when someone comes to you before maybe even you know you need help and they move towards you to offer love and help and encouragement. And this morning, I guess I was just thinking, even all week preparing, like I'm so glad I don't have to come and preach a message on what we have to do to get to God. I can come and preach a message about what God did to get to us. And I'm hoping, we're, we're talking about love this morning in Advent, and I hope that this helps magnify the love of God for you, that he is the first mover in your story, that God moved first, that he was coming towards you, he was coming towards us long before we even knew we needed to ask for help. And it's interesting, in Revelations 13, it, it gives Jesus the title of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I don't want to admit that I even, or I don't want to sound like I even know what all of that could mean, but somehow, before the very people that were going to need to be saved existed, God was already moving towards us in love. He was already making a plan. His son was already the solution to coming towards us. And I hope that just magnifies love again this morning, that God moved first. God moved towards you first. And I just want to go through a few verses really quickly here to emphasize this. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We love because he first loved us. God moved towards us first. If you want to turn to Luke 15, I'm going to look at the parable of the prodigal son. But I've been praying for myself and for us that, again, recognizing, remembering, or maybe learning for the first time that God is always the first mover in our story. He was always coming, and he still is today, this very moment, I believe, coming towards us first. Before we even know the things we need, he's moving towards us because he wants to love us. Before we read in Luke 15, just a thought that I want to put out there to help us, again, get into this parable, but I think we've all experienced it, like when stories are told, because this is a parable, so this is a story, something Jesus used to teach some people about himself, about the gospel. And when a story's told, it is good, helpful, and probably even necessary to understand the culture a little bit, the people he's talking to, what's going on around him. Because whenever we hear a story, in our minds we're going to fill that story up based on our context, our background, our upbringing. So I think it's helpful sometimes to slow down and try to remember who is Jesus talking to? Are there things that we're going to miss because we live in America that they would have understood in Middle Eastern Palestine at that time? And just an example of this would be if I make the statement, if I tell the story, you know, my, my whole family comes over every year for Christmas. In your minds, you likely started to fill that story in. Maybe you tried to fill it in for me based on what you think my experiences are. What does that mean when my whole family comes over? Or maybe it's based on your traditions. Like, did you picture your whole family together on Christmas morning opening presents? Or for you, maybe it's the week before or the week after your whole family comes together. Or maybe as we acknowledged already, does your mind go to my whole family is no longer able to all come together? But based on our context, our culture, our upbringing, the things like that, we fill in details in that story. Or if I use the word football, right? So we're in football season. And if you grew up in the United States, and I make the statement, the greatest football player in history, all of your minds are immediately going to Joe Montana and Jerry Rice and Ronnie Lott, right? But if you grew up almost anywhere else other than America, and I said the greatest football player in history, you probably think of like Pele or Messi, and I'm not sure who the other soccer players are. But based on your culture and upbringing is going to dictate... And I say all that because it was a while ago I was reading a book um, called The Cross and the Prodigal, and it's Luke 15, Through the Eyes of Middle Eastern Peasants. And Dr. Kenneth Bailey wrote this. And he had lived in this culture for about 40 years and began to understand their culture, their traditions. And again, they're very traditional people. I think we all probably are more than we admit. But he started discovering and learning things that impacted him so much in these parables in Luke 15 to help fill them up with the gospel 
and an understanding. And I just want to pull a couple things out this morning that I believe will help us see and again recognize, remember, I hope be amazed at the truth that God moved first. That God pursued us before we even knew we needed pursuing. That God sent his son to be born in a manger before we ever knew we needed a savior. And again, I hope that gets in your heart a little bit. Like God moved towards you to love you before you even knew you needed to be loved. So let's read Luke 15. I'm going to read 11 through 24. So Luke 15, verse 11. You guys are quiet today. We doing all right? And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired, out, hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and and is found and they began to celebrate. Amen. So the son says to his dad, I know I have an inheritance coming and I want it right now. And again, especially in this culture, it would have been basically, Dad, I can't wait for you to die. I want what's coming to me now so I can use it now. I think in any culture, this would be an insult to the father, but especially there, this was, you didn't do this. It was literally meaning, Dad, I wish you were dead now. His father gives him the inheritance, which was likely land and property and livestock, and he takes it and he sells it and just heads out of town into a Gentile land. We don't know all the details, but it says he recklessly went broke. He had nothing to the point where he goes and gets hired out by someone and works in the field with the pigs, and he became so hungry that he desired to even eat what the pigs were eating. But it says they didn't even let him do that. He was getting no help from anybody. But he knew something had to change. He gets to this point, and he realizes, I need to make a change. Something needs to be different. I guess I have a couple of these verses for us. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me 
as one of your hired servants. Well, just a couple things out of this. First, he says, I will arise. And the verse right before that, 17, I just, even as I was reading, I really, he said, but I perish here with hunger. So he's on the, the void of starvation. Like this is a famine. And again, this doesn't mean that price choppers out of bread. This is a famine. There's no food. And he's not even getting any help from anybody. He wants to eat what the pigs are eating. I think he's really to the point where I could perish. But then he says, I will arise. And that, that word arise, it's the idea that he recognizes that he needs a resurrection. Like he's almost dead. He's like, I'm going to perish, but I will arise and go. Like he's so desperate, he's like, I'm going to head back to see if my father will hire me. And I know in the past, I think I've already thought about this is, this is the point that the son has repented. That this is the point where the son turns and heads back to his father. But as I've been reading it, studying it more, I would say not so fast yet. Because notice what else he says. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And at this point it seems like, okay, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But then he says, treat me as one of your hired servants. I'll just read what William Barclay says. He said, the ordinary slave was in some sense a member of the family, but the hired servant could be dismissed at a day's notice. He was not one of the family at all. See, the son does not get the gospel yet. He's, yes, at the bottom of the barrel. He's worried about dying of starvation. He's willing to try to go home and see if dad maybe will hire me as a servant, knowing full well that that does not mean he's, I'm going to be his son again. They're not going to allow me back into the family. But I'm going to try to earn enough to pay my dad back. He wanted no grace. He still wanted to be in control here. I'm hungry enough to suck up a little pride, but maybe dad will hire me so I can work for him to pay back all my bad deeds. That's not grace. That's not the gospel yet. Check out what happens in verse 20. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And first, we should be a little bit stunned with the fact that the father had compassion and not contempt on his son. This was a big disgrace. But I also want each one of you, each of us here today, that God does not have contempt for you right now. Like God is not looking at you with contempt right now. No matter what your morning was like, no matter what this week was like, no matter what the last months were like, maybe no matter what your whole life was like, God is not looking at you with contempt. He's looking at you with compassion. It doesn't mean that consequences aren't real. It doesn't mean that God's happy about the choices that we make often. But it's this idea of compassion as he's looking at us and almost this, this feeling of sorrowful because maybe you are in a time of brokenness or hurt or this, some certain sin seems to have a hold of you and you're just in that and he's looking at you and his heart is broke for you. He has compassion for you. He doesn't want you to, to live in that brokenness. He doesn't want you to have to live in that hurt and the pain. 
And if you've never believed in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he's looking at you with compassion because he knows the consequences of sin. And his heart is broke towards you. He's got compassion. And that word talks about like the bottom of your guts, like feeling of just ache for someone, of love for someone, because you're so desperate to want to show them your love. And the Father in this parable is, I believe, clearly represents God. And now, I believe we understand that God is running in this parable. At our Christmas carol things, I mentioned we would talk about the greatest running event in history. This is what I was talking about. The Father sees the Son a long way off and starts running towards him. And I wonder again, again, going back to this story and how we can, if you're anything like me, you get pictures and images and you kind of, you're in the story and what does this look like? And I know for me, it was always a big white house with a wraparound porch, a really long driveway, probably a picket fence with a gate and the father's sitting on the porch and the son comes through the gate and he gets up off the porch and jogs down and throws his arms around his son. I don't know if anybody's, got that same picture at all. And that's a very Western way to view this. But again, in this culture, in this time, it was, they lived in villages, community. There was no long driveways out. It was, everything was about community, about togetherness, about family, about who the father was. And the fact that the father ran here, again, in that culture, it never happened. It was a disgrace, a dishonor. He would have to pick up his robe and tuck it into his belt and show his legs, his ankles, his knees. And that was just an absolute disgrace to do. It dishonored not only the father, but the entire village. It was shameful. It just never happened. But the father, for some reason, this day, said, I don't really care what the village thinks today. I'm pulling up my robe, and I don't care if they see my ankles and my knees and maybe even some of my thighs. I'm going to see my son. Another thing that jumped out at me as I'm looking at this word for ran is actually a technical word for the idea of racing in like the Olympics, like a foot race in the stadiums. So when he says ran, he's talking about racing. And I'm thinking, so what's racing got to do with this? I can kind of imagine, I love my children, and if they came home, I might be apt to, to run towards them, to hug them. So what's this big deal about running? And okay, the culture, I get that. But why racing? Because racing is the idea of you have to get somewhere first. Right? If it's a running race, you want to be the first one across the finish line. Or you might race to finish something before other people can finish it because there's something at stake. So the idea of racing, I'm thinking, okay, like why did the father have to race? Who is he racing against? And this is where it got exciting to me. There's something called keza. It's a Jewish ceremony. And again, when Jesus told this parable to these people in this setting, these tradition, this culture, they immediately and it seemed as Dr. Bailey just talked to numerous people in that setting in the culture with the traditions, they're like, absolutely, this would have been part of the story, even though Jesus doesn't explicitly put that in there. 
This idea of Keza was this ceremony, and there was a handful of things that could happen, but if a Jewish boy went and married someone the family didn't approve of, or if a Jewish boy took his inheritance and went and spent it and blew it in a Gentile world, if that boy at any time ever tried to come back to that village, he would have to face the Keza ceremony. And it was a ceremony that happened at the village gates. And if you read in the Bible often, you, talk, you see the patriarchs, the fathers, the elders of the, the villages at the, at the gates of the village. So this Keza ceremony would have to happen there. And it's also interesting that the father was not allowed to be at this ceremony. He had to stay home. And the reason was is because a father's blessing always trumped the village decision. And this also is very important for this to fill up with the gospel. And what would happen is if a boy blew his inheritance like this son did and wanted to come back to the village, the first thing you would have to do is get to the gates and go through the Keza ceremony where the elders would decide his fate. And they would take a clay pot and what they would do is they would, that didn't work, I'm going to smash it just because I like to smash stuff sometimes. But they would take a pot, and when this sun would come, they would break the pot. You get the picture, it chipped. All right, we're going to break one. I actually tested this out this morning, and it shattered nicely and fairly neatly. But But even put yourself in this position. I know I'm being a little silly right now, and I apologize. But if you're a son coming back, because again, this culture, if you're a family, like that's how you are identified. Like, I'm the son of, here's my father. And they're saying, there we go, you're cut off. You're done. And the broken pieces was the idea that this relationship is shattered. It's not going back together. You're cut off. So when this boy is getting this speech ready that we read, the idea that I'm coming back and yes, I've sinned against my father, And I'm just going to hope that he'll hire me as a servant to get back. He wasn't coming back thinking he was going to be able to get back in the house as a son. He knew he was coming back to the Keza ceremony. He was just hoping maybe they would allow him to work and be hired by his father to pay this debt off. And ultimately, I think for the point of I'm really, really hungry right now. So again, we have the father... It says he saw the sun a long way off. Which to me implies that he was looking. He was watching. I don't think Jesus is telling this parable like, hey, one day he just happened to look up and on the horizon he just saw someone that that might be my son. Let me, no, Jesus is telling this parable like this father is watching. He's looking, he's anticipating, he's hoping, he's praying his son will return. And he saw him a long way off, and he tucked up his robe. And he started to race. He started to sprint. Now I'm like, I think I know why this is a race now. The father knew that he had to get to his boy before his boy got to Keza. His father knew that the only chance... I have of putting my arm around my boy and kissing him and blessing him if I can get to him before he gets to the village gates. I believe that's why the father is watching. He's watching. 
I got to get to my son before he gets to Keza, before he gets cut off. And when he saw his son coming, he said, I don't care what anybody thinks about me today. I just want my boy to know what I think about him today. And in that moment, I think we get a picture of the incarnation of Christ coming. Because that son should have walked in the village and received the shame and the dishonor of being cut off. But the father tucked up his robes and said, I'm going to take his shame. I'm going to take the dishonor that's meant for my son. And I'm running through the village and I don't care what they think about me. I only care that my son knows that I love him and I want him to be my son. Now listen to the son's response. And there's a change that happens in the heart of this young boy. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he stops there. There's no more, will you hire me so I can pay you back? I think there's a humility that happens here that realizes I'm putting myself in your hands, Father. Like I've never experienced the love that I'm receiving right now. And the fact that you're willing to bring me back into the family as a son, he no longer says, I'm going to try to earn my way back. I'm no longer going to try to work enough. I'm just going to receive this grace. I'm going to receive this love in this moment. And it's easy to read a story and think that's easy to do, but I, I want to challenge all of us. Is our speech more like the first one the son gave that, yes, I know things are bad right now and I need to change and I need a new way of living and God, I promise I'll work as hard as I can. I'll pay you back. Just hire me back as a servant. I know I can never really get in the house again and be a son or a daughter, but man, or do we come as the father runs to us and embraces us and just say, okay, I'll receive the grace. I'll receive the love. I'll be a son, I'll be a daughter. The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Again, clearly getting a picture of reconciliation, of forgiveness, of repentance, true repentance happening, restoration. But remember how I mentioned the son using the word arise, that idea that he's about to perish and I must arise, this need for new life, this need for a resurrection. And notice the father saying, my son was dead and is alive again. In that moment when he received the father's blessing, he got life. Father did not wait for the prodigal to come to him, but rather at great cost goes down and runs and sprints and races to his son. God moved first. And on that moment, on the road, I believe when he hugged him and kissed him, put his robe on him and his ring on him, his shoes on his feet, that trumped Keza. And again, use your imagination again. 
they're walking back through the gates. The elders are there, probably their draws on the ground, like, what has just happened? This doesn't happen. This can't happen. This never happens. And this son can just walk right through the gates because he's got the robe of his family's, his father's best robe on him. The ring of his father's authority on his finger. The shoes that would elevate him in that culture. And he walks right past Keza, right into the house as a son. He should have got cut off. He should have got Keza. He receives grace. He receives love. He receives a party, a celebration. Maybe you're thinking, well, that gospel is just too easy then. Again, this is not God saying there are no consequences, but this is God announcing, this is Jesus announcing something called grace. If you fast forward to Good Friday, you now see and understand when Jesus hung on that cross, he got Kesa. He literally got cut off. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's a real sense that on that cross, God the Father went and took the clay cup that should have been ours, and at the foot of the cross, he smashed it. And cut his son off. And he did that so that each one of us in this place, if we turn toward God, we can get the open arms of God, saying, welcome home. And I want to tell you in the simplest, most straightforward way why this is really, really good news. Because I don't care what culture tells you. I care what scripture tells us. And it says it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. That's just the truth. Each of us will die unless he come, returns, and there's a sense even if he returns, we're going to die. But then comes judgment. Each one of us is going to appear at the judgment seat of God and give an account for our life. Do you think it's going to work when you arrive at the judgment seat of Christ to have a nice speech prepared? I know I've messed up. I know I've done a bunch of things right, but I really, you know, kind of turned and tried to start living a little bit more, you know, moral. You know, I certainly made sure the good outweighed the bad. Do you think that's going to work at the judgment seat of Christ? No. Because God is holy. God is just. Romans 3.26, it was to show his righteousness. He sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, Christmas and the cross happened so that he might be just and the justifier, that your sin would be punished. The cutting off that was meant to be us was taken care of on the cross. 
And by faith, we could receive the righteousness of God. So that each of us, if we receive that, not by works, not by paying him back, by just saying, I surrender and I receive that, when we get to that judgment seat, we already have the righteousness of God on us. We already have the ring of his authority on our fingers. We already have the gospel of peace on our feet. And he's going to welcome us right into the village of the eternal kingdom of God. See, Christmas is God moving toward us. Racing toward each one of us. Because he's looking at each one of us saying, I have so much compassion for you. I must get to you before you get to the judgment seat. And right now in this moment, I don't care if you've been saved for 60 years, 80 years, or if you're here searching and wondering what's all of this about. Right now, God in his love and his compassion is moving towards you saying, I want to welcome you again. I want to hug you again. I want to bless you again. I want to welcome you in again. And maybe you've been struggling in a sin for a while and now you're you're here this morning and you say, get back. It's been taken care of. Or maybe you're here this morning and saying, okay, I want that. I give up. I surrender. We all, we're going to sing in a second here, but I want to take a moment because I, I really feel like to respond to this, begin to recognize God moved first. God is moving towards each one of us. In whatever situation you're in, he has compassion for you. He wants to pour his love out you in a new, richer way. He's saying, stop trying to earn it. Stop trying to deserve it. Just receive my blessing right now. And the Father's blessing always trumps Keza always trumps. So if we could all bow our heads and just close our eyes and just, I want to give you just a moment personally to be with him and if he's speaking anything to you, but also a moment to respond to his love, his invitation. And I'm going to ask if there's anyone here that desires for the first time to believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, saying, okay, I realize I'm at the bottom of the barrel and I'm turning and I just, I receive it. I do want you to raise your hand so we can acknowledge this. That God wants to just wrap his arms around you. He's not looking at you with contempt. He's looking at you with compassion, with love. Father, I thank you for this moment right now. Thank you for moving towards us first before the foundation of the world. The Lamb who was slain. I just pray you would in our hearts magnify the love you have for each one of us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I just pray, I ask that you would pour that love into each one of us hearts, Father. And again, I just want to ask again, does anybody here want just to to give their life to Christ this morning, want to just surrender to him, to realize I've been walking away from you, Father, but I 
coming back now and I just put my life in your arms. It's the greatest gift there is. There will be a party, there will be a celebration. And if the worship team, if you would come up and I'm gonna sing, He Shall Reign. Let's worship him for this great love. Let's celebrate this morning for the love he showed to us by moving towards us, by racing to get to us before we got to the judgment seat. Let's celebrate this morning that we have the Father's open arms around us saying, welcome home, I love you. So let's stand and worship. Amen. God delights in each one of you. Like, I got to feel, like, I just, again, picture this father running. I got a feeling his face was just shining. Like, he came back. I'm going to get to him. He loves you guys so much. And just celebrate that this Christmas. Recognize how much he loves you. He moved first. I'm going to pray for you. I'll probably try to clean up some of my mess before the children do that. But I just want to pray and bless you guys. Father, thank you so much for each one here. I do ask, Father, you would bless them. Fill their hearts with joy. Fill their hearts with hope and love. And they would know, each one of us would know how much you love us. Father, even in the midst of loss, of hurt, of sorrow, of pain, of just so many different, and we just think of several, many that weren't able to be here this morning, even sick or going through some really hard things. I pray your blessing on them. Pray you would comfort them, Father. Fill their hearts with peace. And I pray this would be a Christmas that, Father, even is fuller than any Christmas they've ever experienced with your presence and your closeness to them. With your face shining on them, bless them, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for moving towards us first, Father. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Love you guys. God bless you.